We talked about living in the shadow of the cross, and that's our series that we're going to be looking at for the next little while. And we've been looking at, Pastor Paul's been leading us through the book of Ruth, and the book of Ruth really is a precursor for where we're going now as Easter is approaching. Easter is almost here. It's coming. And in the book of Ruth, we were, we were told and instructed that God is a rescuing redeemer. That God rescues and redeems the people who call upon him. The book of Ruth takes place in the time of Judges. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1-2 Samuel. 1-2 Samuel talk about the kings, David and Saul, and how the kingdom was all established. The, the book of Ruth is a personal testimony that takes place in the time of Judges. Now, Judges happens to be the time when they record how people, in seven cycles, the people of Israel, where they sinned, and in their sin they were enslaved, and then they cried out to God in supplication. They cried out to God and God rescued them. God brought them salvation only for them to have a period of silence and then sin again. Seven times through the book of Judges. Sin and then slavery, supplication, salvation, silence, sin. Seven times the people went through that over 400 years. And within that period, we have the story of Ruth, to illustrate for us that in the personal struggles that a person faces as they sin and cry out to God, God is their rescuer, redeemer. God cares for them. And then from Ruth, we have King David coming, and then we got First and Second Samuel. But the stories of the Old Testament are used in the New Testament to affirm for us that the character of God is true. That the character of God maintains itself from old to new to present. That God never changes. You see, God is a missionary God. God loves us. God, well actually God's pretty crazy about us. And he thinks we're okay. And, and he wants us to experience his love and to be embraced by his presence. And that's what Ruth tells us. And that's what Romans chapter 6 tells us. And so that's where we're going this morning, to Romans chapter 6. Up until this point, see, Romans is a collection of, of sermons that Paul has linked together in order to be used as instruction for the early church. And in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's telling us about the cross. What does the cross do? And Christ's work on the cross, he outlines that for us in chapter 5. You see at just the right time, Dan read for us in chapter 5, verse 6, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He compares that to what we would do. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was nothing that we did that merited God to die for us. But he did. God loves us. God's just crazy about us. He really is. He really thinks we're great. We're okay. And because of that work on the cross, 
we are able to realize that there are two things that basically happen. And, and Paul concludes this part of the sermon in chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages, the things that we naturally earn, the things that we naturally accomplish for ourselves is only death. But God's gift, God's wonderful, bounteous gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ. My goal today for all of us is that when we come to the end of this morning, we will discern and determine in our hearts to take one action step of faith. To allow the Spirit of God to move us. To change us. Convict, convince, and motivate. Paul begins this time in chapter 6 by saying these things. What should we say then? It's a rhetorical question. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life in him. We may live a new life. The writer of Hebrews records the same thought this way in Hebrews chapter 6. It is impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they have crucified the Son of God all over again and subjected him to public disgrace. The rhetorical question that Paul invites us to consider is, do we keep doing bad stuff so we experience more good stuff? Or do we allow ourselves to be identified in the person of Christ, die to sin, die to self, in order to be made anew and alive in God? We're going to have some fun. This picture is an inadequate representation of God. It's inadequate because just as that hymn says, if the ocean were filled with ink... If every person were a scribe, if every piece of grass was a quill, if the parchments were the skies, we would only begin to scratch the very surface of who God was if we all took time to fill it with praise. And so this is a very inadequate representation of God, but representation nonetheless. It's full of life, peace, joy, hope. Kindness, forgiveness, righteousness, justice, passion, purpose, purity, grace, holiness, completeness, love. All the things we often crave. This glass, on the other hand, represents the world empty dry barren hopeless 
lifeless, hollow, pointless. For some, today may be the faith step where you recognize your reality as being one of yearning, hoping, crying, seeking. And realize that everything you are yearning and crying and seeking for is found in God. And by asking Christ into your life, you become a new person. And when we do that, we become filled. You see, God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He wants us to be embraced by his love. I have come that you might have life, Jesus says, and have it to the full. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. And then Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. And also come. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come. In the moment of your dryness, in the moment of your barrenness, in the moment of your emptiness, come and find life in God. And for some today, that may be your step of faith. Reflect back on that time when God came into your life. You felt filled. You felt passionate. You realized that life was now meaningful and there was purpose and there was hope and forgiveness as the love of God flowed into you. And you came to church and you worshipped and you let the music fill your heart and you allowed the Spirit of God to move through His Word and you were... Alive. And the words of Romans were true. Do not, uh, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and affirm what God's will is, His perfect and pleasing will. And you latched on to that. And you held on to that. And you relished Yet there lurks a danger. For while we still live in this world, we are confronted by the patterns and person of this world who wants to come and destroy our soul, discourage us and dissuade us, entangle us with that which will cause us to fall away and no longer trust Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The sin that so easily entangles. Early Christian theologians 
mark these in seven general categories. They call them the seven deadly sins. Anger, greed, laziness, pride, lust, envy, gluttony. And if we were honest with ourselves and if we look around us, we easily see that the pattern of our day is such that no matter what I do, the fullness of God seems to be sucked out of me. And no matter where I go and no matter how life happens, it seems there is leakage in my life. And so we come back to the place of wanting God to stir us once again. So that somehow through his stirring, we may once again capture that initial moment when God filled us, when God came into our lives and changed us, when God, when we recognized our sins forgiven and that we were new people. And we want those feelings again to come. And we ask God, to stir. And then we begin to think, well, if God is going to stir, and I want the very presence of God to work, maybe I should start doing things that allow him to stir more. If coming to church fills me with a sense of God's purpose and passion in my life, then if I don't come to church for a couple of weeks and then I come back again, I will be filled even more. If reading the Word fills me with a purpose of who God is in my life and the Holy Spirit convicting me and convincing me and allowing me to draw near to Him, if I don't read it for a while, when I do read it, maybe I will experience it more. And we begin to allow things to come into our lives that draw us into patterns of fudging. Making do, not being honest. And so Paul has this rhetorical question. Whoa, my pocket is ringing. That's a kid at home asking me why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Hopefully, the house is not on fire. I'm really curious what that was all about. (laughs) Paul, if it rings again, I'll give it to somebody, okay? And you can hand and figure it out what's going on. Uh, What shall we say then, Paul says? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In this rhetorical question, he asks us to consider... Are you willing to try to manufacture for yourself the presence of God or are you willing to allow God's presence to flow in and through you? Remember the writer of Hebrews where it says, Run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This speaks of motion. This speaks of engagement. Romans 6, 3-4 tells us then how faith functions. 
Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. How does this work? We recognize that we don't want to be empty, lifeless, barren. And we recognize the futility that it is to go through life always seeking to somehow be stirred by God. To allow the gurus in our life to fill our heads with knowledge. And to somehow recapture those initial feelings and thoughts. When Jesus was approached, he was asked this insightful question. What is the greatest commandment? And then in Matthew 22, he said this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's where it gets tricky. We can understand what it means to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul. We, buy, we, we go through Bible studies. We come to worship. We go through groups. We allow Christian friends to speak into our lives. And we allow that to focus our thoughts and our attention on God, to love God. But we also realize that no matter how hard we try, if we try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, there are times when sin ekes out. We become angry. I become angry, particularly when I'm at the mall and somebody takes a parking spot that I had been coveting. We recognize that in the mirror of our soul, we are not the people that we want to be. While I may be handsome and dashing on the outside, I know inside I'm filled with things that I don't want to be. And so what do we do? Jesus invites us to love our neighbor as ourselves. When Paul was talking about the cross... He said, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And now we become baptized into Christ. We die to Christ. It is no longer us who lives, but Christ who lives in us. And so... When we are called to be filled by God, we allow His love to flow through us. Romans 6, 1 and 2 tells us the false way of allowing our faith to function. 
that somehow through the patterns of sin and selfishness, we manipulate the presence of God. While Romans 6, 3, and 4 tell us the way that Christ has in mind, that we identify ourselves with Christ, that we die to ourselves, that we are die to our own ambitions, our own longings, and we seek to love others. <clears throat> Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So where does this take us? If Christ tells us to embrace a life of trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. If Christ invites us to a place of of union with him through love, for God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And also Christ calls us to that brink of trust. To the realization that God is big enough. Where we die to our pride, where we die to self-strength and ambition, where we die to our own resources and come and recognize the purpose and presence of Christ. Jesus says, or, or it's said of Jesus this way in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ taking upon himself our sin. What great love. And we, being baptized into Christ, identifying with Christ, are called to love as we have been loved. The overflowing life is revealed to us in Hebrews chapter 12. It's a persevering race. It's following the commands of Christ when he says in John chapter 13, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Here's our danger. We remain barren. We remain stirred, selfishly seeking God's touch, repeating patterns of sin, thinking that such patterns would lead us even closer to God. Or we invite God's strength to help us embrace Christ's invitation. To be identified with Christ, as verse 3 tells us, to be, to be loved by God, to be baptized into Christ, and then live a new life to love others. To experience our trust in Him so that we come to the brink of our own resources and realize that God is there. I don't know what this will look like in your situation. But I can identify some markers. You see, when you, when you reflect upon your life, 
upon your relationships, upon the people whom God has called you to love. And you find that everything is under control. Everything is safe. Everything is orderly. There really is no need for God. That's not a good thing. But if you find yourself being drawn into relationship, being drawn into people, being drawn into situations that cause you to come to the edge of your resources, that cause you to come to the edge and, and, and the, the brink of your own destruction, where it seems that God has abandoned you, that God has forsaken you, that God has turned His back, and He is calling you to do things that you think are impossible, He's calling you to love those who are unlovely. He's calling you to serve those who don't deserve it. He's calling you to give what you can't give up. When you come to that edge and you step beyond it and realize, apart from you, Lord, I'm hooped. That's a good space to be. Because it's in that space that the sufficiency of Christ comes through. I'm reminded of a woman who had no money, no fame, no influence, no resources. And yet 40 years later, we called her Mother Teresa. God is calling us to be identified with Christ. To die to self and to allow the love of God to flow in and through us to those around us. That's why we have communion. Each month we gather together in order for us to have a visible reminder of the presence of Jesus in our lives. His body broken, represented by the bread that was broken. His body broken so that our sins would be forgiven. The cup representing his blood that washed over us to cleanse us, to make us new people. A people called by his name, holy. Beloved, children, and a people embraced by the love of God. And we come and we recognize these visible symbols because of the promises they represent. And I was thinking of that this week. That when Jesus gathered with his disciples, he said these words, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them saying, Drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. <clears throat> 